You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. It's good to be back here. I uh, wanted to thank everybody for their patience with me. Um, it's been a while since I've updated the podcast. I've had a few people ask me if the man took me out, uh, mostly on YouTube. Uh, but uh, no, the man has not taken me out. I have been kind of a hermit the last month or month and a half. And technically, I guess you can do a podcast and still be a hermit. But I've been a hermit and have not done a podcast and I'm going to blame chiefly this overwhelming desire to get the Ancient Aliens debunked film project done and done in a reasonable amount of time. I feel really strongly that I should just focus uh, my efforts on on getting it completed. And I have since I got back from Africa. Just I've been a one-tracked mi- mind uh, in regard to projects and things. And as a result, because I've been so focused on getting it done... Um, all the other things have kind of taken a, a, a back seat. And one of those things is answering emails on a regular basis. So that's the main thing I want to apologize to anybody about that's emailed me and I haven't responded. That's why. Um, I hope to get right back into the normal system once this is all completed. And if anybody wants to email me, and it's really important, of course, I'm, I'm going to read them all anyway, and I'll, I'll answer anything that's really important for sure. So... Um, just briefly on the update of the of the project, I have about um, seven individual uh, segments done already. That adds up to about an hour's worth of material. And uh, the film itself is going to probably be about four hours long. And so I, and I've got a lot more to do. All the really hard stuff is upcoming in addition to all the finishing touches and stuff, which is actually going to be somewhat complicated with this film. So I've got a lot to do. I did already. Uh, um, uh, Michael Heiser came in and and uh, and he recorded uh, these interviews uh, at the at the studio here in Nashville. We recorded at the uh, public access television studio. So um, it was great. Everything worked out well with that. Kind of an interesting story about that, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, so really everything's done now except for me just doing it. But I need time to do it. And I decided that it would be better if I focused strongly and got this done by the end of the month than it would be for me to continue doing all the regular uh, duties and then and then get it done in two months or whatever it would be. So anyway, that's that. Um Real quick show note thing on um, the the conference, the Future Congress conference. I hear that's going to be really good. I actually decided not to attend this year. Um, David had asked me about it while I was in Africa. Then he asked me again when I when I came back. And just because I think mainly I, I feel so busy right now, and I feel like when I do those conferences and things like that, I tend to to make that a priority and, and, uh, it kind of ends up being what I'm doing for the next, you know, month or two. And I, I, I kind of just wanted to leave my options open, but I did hear, I know, uh, Mike Heiser was asked and he'll probably be there. 
Um, Alan Kirshner I also talked to. He said he was asked as well. I, I'm not sure if these uh, have confirmed yet. And I'm sure there's a lot more interesting people that you guys will really enjoy there. So I just wanted to announce that I probably won't be there for the future Congress. I suppose things could change, but I really don't think so. Okay, so what I'm going to do in this episode is first I'm going to talk about some real quick ways to debunk Planet X theories. And um, then I'm going to talk about my crazy experience that happened uh, last week and what sent, what sent me into the hospital and uh, and changed my life forever. So first, the Planet X stuff. I've been looking into Planet X um, because somebody has invited me to be a part of a video project that is um, looking at Planet X. And I guess I'm the skeptical viewpoint. The person in, uh, that I'm sort of countering is a Planet X guru guy, and he has his own specific uh, version of the Planet X theories. And if anything that you know about it or any particular person that you know knows about it, it's almost guaranteed that they have a different version of what they think Planet X is, what they think it's going to do, and all those things. So, so the peculiar details for each person's Planet X theory I won't really be touching on today. Uh, but I will be talking about a big macro way to debunk them all, just about. So let me start off by talking about some real science stuff about Planet X. Um, let me orient you to the solar system here. We, uh, we've we got Jupiter, you know, then when Saturn's next, Uranus is past that. And on the very, very, very edge is Neptune. And Pluto is out there too, but, you know, who cares about Pluto? So... Neptune is about as far out as um, as you go, but but that wasn't always known about. In fact, Uranus was discovered, I think, in the 1600s or something like that. And the discovery of Neptune is actually really, really interesting because as soon as they discovered Uranus and they started observing it, and they they could actually tell how big the thing was and and how fast it went around the sun. They could tell a lot of stuff about it, even back then. And so... Once it made one, one uh, revolution around the sun, they noticed mathematically that something wasn't right because it should have done something else based on its mass and how fast it went around the sun. It, it, it should have done something other than what it did. And that's the first time that they hypothesized that the anomalies in its sort of the way it was acting gravitationally was due to another massive object close by that was kind of tugging on it and they said if, if that that would kind of explain the weird things that Uranus was doing and so Neptune was mathematically predicted before it was actually found and they found it uh, I think in the early 1800s or something they found Neptune so with Neptune they did exactly the same thing they determined how big Neptune was with their telescopes and they observed its route around the sun, and then they said, and then they calculated whatever those extremely advanced calculations would be, and they said it's being also perturbed. That's the word that they use. It's perturbations, um, and they say that that it wasn't quite right either. That uh, and what they said was in, what was interesting is that they said that whatever was on the outside of Neptune had to be super super massive in order to explain um, the gravitational stuff that's going on with Neptune. So they were looking for 
when they found Pluto, because this is exactly how they found Pluto, because they were out looking for Planet X, what they called Planet X. Um, they found Pluto instead, and they were kind of disappointed eventually because they realized Pluto was an extremely small um, planet, whatever it's called now, a dwarf planet. So even when they found Pluto, the word went out, this is not big enough to explain the perturbations of Neptune. We're still looking, people. We're still looking for the big one. It's out there because the it doesn't make any sense if Neptune is the size we think it is, and if it's going around the sun, the speed we think it is, then there needs to be a supermassive object outside of this in order to explain this. Okay, That's, that's basically up until 1993. 1993 is pretty recent. Um, that's kind of what everybody thought. And that's why a lot of early Planet Xers, you know, they're still kind of going off this old mindset pre-1993. Well, what happened in 93? What happened in 93 was a, a satellite of ours made a pass-by of Neptune and actually recalculated the size of Neptune and degraded it about 5%. Not a whole lot, but 5% difference actually changed the calculations consider considerably and now, and, and now explains perfectly Neptune's orbit. Um, so there are no perturbations in Neptune meaning that we're not looking anymore for a supermassive object outside of Neptune. It's We're not looking anymore. Nobody in the real science world has been looking for Planet X in that regard for since 1993. The only people left are dinosaurs that still think that's going on. Pretty interesting, but here's, here, that, here's moving on to the place of where you can debunk m most of these all in one shot. So Planet X, no matter who, well, depending on who you're talking to, it's going to be something completely different, a brown dwarf star, um, it's going to be a, a planet, it's going to be a, a death star, who knows, depends on the person. But generally people are going to say it's about the size of Jupiter or bigger. And that's the key. If they're saying something like, and even if they're not, even if they're saying it's Earth-sized, you still got them with this. Um, the thing is, is that if anything... If anything was going to be anywhere close to our solar system, the it, the gravitational effects on the planets around us would be ultra noticeable. I mean, the analogy is often putting a bunch of real small uh, marbles on a bed and aligning them. You know, put the big marble for the sun and put the other marbles all around the center of the of the bed, and then rolling a bowling ball you know, across that solar system, those marbles are just going to all go everywhere. That's kind of how gravity works in a really simplified way. It, it, it dep the, how big an object is is how much mass that it uh, it displaces. So what does that mean to you? Well, let me, let me quote a few different people here. Um, there, there are very good limits to what you can hide and what and at what distances in the solar system and not detect their gravity. You could put a a Mars size object, a few hundred AU. Okay, AU is the distance from the Earth to the Sun, so ten times more distant than Neptune. Okay, think of the furthest planet in our solar system and go ten more times out, and it could be the size of Mars. Okay, that's. That's the furthest, the closest you could get without us noticing it. And I'll talk about how would we notice it in a minute. And it's really easy. It would be so immediately detected. Um, if it was the size of Jupiter, 
then a few thousand AU is the closest it could go. That's a thousand times the distance of Neptune. So our, our solar system times 1,000. Now, let's say an object was barreling at us right now. Just a huge object was barreling at And let's say it was as close as Jupiter was to the Earth, okay? It would still take it three years to get here at that distance, okay? So uh, it's hard to explain how impossible this is. Now, most people, when, when they're confronted with their uh, the reasons why their Planet X theories don't work, like, for example, how come we don't see this thing, you know, because... You can't see it, so they'll say, oh, well, it's coming from the South Pole. Uh, that's that's it, the South Pole. And you can't see anything at the darn South Pole, they'll say. Now, that may work for somebody who doesn't know, like me, up until a few uh, days ago. Uh, but that that actually doesn't work, because you can see the South Pole. Like, for example, if you're standing at the North Pole, you could actually see, this is spherical geometry, and I don't know it, but you could actually see up to the equator the entire sky up to the equator, you would actually see half of the known sky if there wasn't anything on the horizon, if you had a flat horizon, from the North Pole. And and if you're on the equator, you can see throughout the course of the year all of the Southern Hemisphere, including everything in the South Pole. And in fact, on, on the equinoxes, I guess you would be able to see it on one, one night. Um, but anywhere from the Southern Hemisphere, you can see the South Pole. It's not, you don't have to, you can look at it just fine. In fact, what's on the South Pole telescope right now is infrared, uh, and it's calibrated for looking at stuff extremely far away, like galaxies and stuff like that. And I don't want to go into the infrared stuff because there's a whole other thing going on with that. But anyway, so, so if something was in our solar system, close to our solar system, and it would have to be really, really um, small and really, really far away for it not to do this. But if it was in that zone of being um, able to be detected because of its gravitational pull, we would notice it. And the reason we would notice it is because um, it's not so much that the planetary perturbations are constantly monitored by like NASA or anything. They're actually constantly monitored in a sense by amateur astronomers because one of the things that amateur astronomers do is they look for these, uh, I don't really even know what they call them, but it's like something that they all do. And, and none of that would work if the math for how quickly planets are going around, you know, weren't perfect. You know, astronomy programs work because everything is where it should be. And if, for some reason, things weren't where they should be, then you would hear about it, not from NASA. You would be hearing about it from the people who are doing this on a nightly basis, calculating their their work, which is based or at least helped by the fact that planets are where they're supposed to be every night, like clockwork. So, so until that changes, until somebody says, hey, the planets aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing anymore. Something gravitationally is coming in. What I'm saying is you can't hide that. Everybody comes up with a theory uh, about Planet X, why you can't see it. Oh, you can't see it because it's invisible. Oh, you can't see it because it's in the South Pole. Oh, you can't see it because it's a uh, reverse see-through. You know, They come up with a million different things of why you can't see this thing that, if it's going to be here in 2012, would clearly be the biggest object in the sky 
barreling towards us if, it, if at its closest uh, approach would be cl to the sun. So it would be the fastest thing in the sky, which is the easiest steps to spot. They have to come up with a million reasons. They like brown dwarf star because they think it means you can't see it, but it would be another sun in the sky at, at any distance um, that they're proposing it would be. Uh, so anyway, my, my point is that uh, this one, you can't hide. You can't hide your gravity. And there is nothing at all to suggest that anything is going to be anywhere near us. You know, people sometimes try to make this out to be something to do with the Bible. Oh, doesn't the Bible prophesy? No, the Bible doesn't prophesy anything like that at all. Um, you know, something hits the earth like a huge mountain burning with fire hits the earth. But let me tell you, that's not a planet and that's not a dwarf star. And if it was, then the last thing that we would need to be worried about is bitter waters from Wormwood. Okay. Because if a planet hits our planet, you know, and the Bible's commentary on it was made, makes the waters bitter, then, then we, we have classified our planets wrong because a planet hitting our planet would do a lot more than just make the waters bitter. Anyway, I hope that gives you some ammo if you ever need to debunk Planet X in a pinch. Uh, you could say that uh, how come it's not affecting the gravity of any of the planets. Um, and that is a big, big blow. It's also a nail in the coffin at the same time. So, okay, moving on to the, the story of what happened to me the last um, week or two. So... I suppose a good place to start would be just mentioning that this the week that I'm talking about was was a really important week. Mike uh, Heiser was coming in uh, from out west, and he was going to record these interviews for Ancient Aliens Debunked. He was also going to work on a project that uh, Mike Bennett had mentioned, uh, Dr. Future, would be a good idea, which was kind of doing a thing about hermeneutics, basically, a video thing that we were going to release on YouTube. And, um, so, so we, I booked four days at the local, um, uh, studio here and, uh, the, what do you call it? Public access studio where I do the, the, te the television show and, and just making preparations and stuff like that. Let's see this Saturday morning. I went out, um, my dad had some, uh, land that he was trying to clear and had all this brush and everything. And he warned me about bugs and stuff like that. But I was like, hey, you know, I've got jeans on. I've got uh, got socks. I mean, how bad could they be? And what happened was I got bit by a lot of what we call here in the South, chiggers. And they're really not that big of a deal. I mean, I've spent my whole, you know, Southern life dealing with them in one form or another. And they were, they were, I guess, a little bit worse than usual in terms of how many there were. But there was, it wasn't anything to really note. Um... But anyway, so some somewhere about two to five hours after that, I just got really, really sick. I started running about 102 plus fever and just body aches everywhere. So what happened was I was really sick for about 24 hours and I thought this is the flu or something like that. And so about the 20, when the 24 hours ended and the body aches went away, I looked at my, I noticed there was one place where my leg, my body still hurt, which was my leg. And I looked at it and there was like a, a mark there and it was really, really red around it. And so I thought it was a spider bite or some other kind of thing that I got bit by and that caused this crazy um, 24 hour fever. 
And turns out, so I went to the doctor eventually, and uh, he kind of said it was a spider bite too, and gave me some doxycycline, which I was already taking anyway, um, because doxycycline is what you take for malaria. So I already had some, and I anyway, long story short, uh, when I came back from Africa, so the the thing is, so he kind of misdiagnosed it, misdiagnosed it, I guess you could say. Because it wasn't a spider bite. What it was, I found out a few days later when I went into the emergency room, was uh, something called cellulitis. Cellulitis is kind of like a staph infection. It's a really, really serious thing that that can kill you. I mean, it's like, um, you know, especially if it's left unchecked or whatnot. And it was left unchecked because that whole week uh, I'm thinking I'm supposed to be getting better. I'm taking the doxycycline, but I wasn't getting better. I just felt terrible. And then I had another doctor's appointment scheduled, but I was like, man, I just got to go to the doctor. I just got to go to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and they took a look at it eventually. And they were like, oh, no, oh, my goodness, you know, running tests and people running around and all this other stuff. And eventually they said it was serious, serious business. And they had to take me to um, begin. I had to stay for three days and and take IV antibiotics, some strong IV antibiotics. And they were all real worried about it. And I was not looking forward to that because I had, that day was the day that Michael Heiser was coming in. Um, I, I thought when I go, when I went in there, I thought, okay, look, I'm feeling, feeling terrible. Clearly they've given me the wrong antibiotic. I'm going to go in there. They're going to say, oh, this is actually this thing. Let me give you a different antibiotic. And then I'll be out of there and I'll be able to do the thing with uh, Heiser later on that night. So that didn't happen. Basically, what happened was I ended up staying in the hospital for two more days. I can, um, and I, I convinced the doctor to let me out for the last day that I didn't have to go through the third round of, anti- of uh, intravenous antibiotics because Heiser was only going to be in for one more day and, it, and we only had one more studio time scheduled. And he's, Heiser was really cool with this the whole time, so no big deal there. He, you know, got a lot of stuff done in Nashville, liked the, the opportunity to not have a whole lot to do while he was here, kind of used to being a bit busy person. So anyway, so he, he was okay, but I didn't want it to be a complete waste. I mean, we had to get at least the stuff for Ancient Aliens done. So, and that's where he was at too. I mean, he figured of all the things that we were going to do, if we were going to do anything, it had to be the ancient aliens thing. So he was right on the same page with me on that. So anyway, I got out of the hospital literally, you know, an hour before having to be at the studio. So, so uh, you know, and I didn't, I didn't sleep that whole time in the, in the 48 hours. I mean, I slept a little bit here and there. It was kind of like trying to sleep in an over um, overseas flight, except in an overseas flight, they don't wake you up every 15 minutes and give you an injection and check your vital signs. So a um, little bit different, but anyway, so went there, did the, did the interviews and stuff. And I was, I was given a really great grace. It didn't hurt. Everything was good during that time with, uh, with um, uh, Dr. Heiser and it went very, very well. But towards the end of the interview or the end of our studio time, I started really feeling not so good again. And my leg had swollen up really, really really bad and so went back home just have been basically resting ever since taking the antibiotics and and things are getting a lot better um but now to the important part what did i learn from all that stuff 
And I actually did learn a few things that I think uh, are really helpful and applicable to, to you all, I hope. The first thing, kind of on the lighter side, is that I'm not sure the idea of hospital visitors is something that's good. We might, we might need to revisit that concept uh, as a people because, uh, I don't know, I'm sure it's just me, but I, I don't really think that when you're there, you've got your hospital robe on, you're not feeling good. Um, the nurse comes in every five seconds to to poke you with a needle or something like that. It, it, that's just not really a great time for like chatting it up, you know. I mean, I I don't think, but that's just me. I'm sure part of my my hermitness, um, I guess. But for real though, the the thing that I mean, I, I learned some general things about hospitals, and it's probably you know it give, gave me a lot of sympathy for people that are there especially for stuff that's really difficult and stuff. But the main thing that I took away from it was a, a strong conviction about uh, my life and the way that uh, I've been living it lately. Uh, and, I, and I hope it, it helps some of you out there too. I've been reading the book of Revelation uh, lately for an upcoming project partially, but focusing mostly on the seven letters right at the beginning, I kind of usually would skip over the seven letters because I was just to get to the good stuff, you know. But I've been going over them over and over again. And I was doing the same thing there in the hospital bed. And that's when, um, that's when I think I understood at least part of the reason, if not the way that this will all work together for good, if, even if it wasn't the reason I was there. Uh, and it was in Revelation chapter 2 talking about the loveless church and it just convicted me greatly and I'll just read it here quickly um, starting in verse 2 um, of course you know this is this is Jesus Christ's letter to these seven churches he says to them a lot of things that they do good and some of the things that they're not doing good and uh, I, I think it's in in preparation for their what they'll have to go through um, that he's sort of refining them or getting them to to work on this these problems but nevertheless it says i know your works your labor your patience and how you cannot bear those that are evil and you have tested those and say they're tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary nevertheless i have this against you that you have left your first love Remember, therefore, from what you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And he goes on. But I feel, and I have felt before, that uh, I needed to pay a lot of attention to that one, that that one more capsulizes me better than any of the other churches, is that here I am, you know, I'm working, I'm doing doing, uh, doing the ministry here after all, you know, but... Um, I get so busy and I find myself always drifting away from the sort of sweetness of fellowship with the Lord and the goodness that I remembered from the days just after salvation and, you know, a year or whatever after that. Those times of, of goodness have been kind of lost in a sea of doing. And I have consciously known that for a while. It's been something that I, I, I think about. I, I lament sometimes when we read something like Paul and say, you know, here's a guy who this was his burning desire was driven out of a love and a devotion to Christ. What a, what a great uh, um, 
burn, you know, furnace burning in, in, in Paul's heart. And I can't always say that that's what my motivation is. You know, sometimes it's just to get the work done or something like that. And anyway, so this is convicting. It says, you know, remember, therefore, from what you have fallen, repent and do the first work. So so there's so there's a few things here. First, verse four says, nevertheless, I have this against you. that You've left your first love. Now, the first love here um, is undoubtedly Christ. Um, but it's obviously not left in the terms of apostatized or anything like that. Um, he's, he's not he's not far gone. I guess you can tell by context this church isn't. But what what I thought was interesting was he gave a recipe for fixing it. Remember, therefore, from what you have fallen, repent and do the first works or the first works could be the things you were doing at first or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The removing your lampstand, I mean, I would assume you've got a lamp and then you've got a stand so people can see the lamp. It would just be a good business decision for Christ to take um, take the lampstand away for somebody that has was not doing it for the correct motives. You just wouldn't want people to see that particular lamp. And so that's a good, you can't blame him for that. It's good good business. But um, remember, therefore, so the first thing I did was, was did I, I, I took took some time and remembered what it was like those days after salvation. I remember being so thankful of the things that I had. There was a little, uh, basically a box that I was living in, uh, a, a spare, spare closet, literally. Uh, and I remember waking up uh, and, and thanking God, first thing, for my closet. This is the great, greatest thing. You know, I, I was so thankful for the small things. When provisions would come, I would be so uh, so thankful for them. And, um, you know, the, the little things like that. I remember just going around and, and handing out the DVDs and watching sermon jams and, uh, and you know, listening to to praise music. And I was just, I, I was just a lot more joyful than than I was. So remembering, that's what that's what I did first. Right? I remembered, and then I repented and do the first thing. So repent and then do the first things. Repentance is a change of mind. And um, and in the hospital bed, I really wanted to change my mind about it. I don't want this to be uh, just something that I've done in the past, like any other thing. You say, oh, I want to change, I want to change, I want to change, but then you don't change. Um, I heard a really great uh, sermon jam. Uh, the other day from John Piper that says, you know, the only the only logical um, response to out of control desire is a declaration of war. Um, and, the, and he says, I've heard so many Christians murmuring about their shortcomings and their addictions and their failures and their so and so. And I see so little war. And I know that's true because in my life where I have had success, it's been war that has uh, that has uh, been the thing that that took care of the issue. I had to declare war on whatever it was, and I think that repentance in this regard is kind of like that too. Re- declaring war on on just just nominalness, um, and. You know, you can't just build the fire up in a day, but it says the, the recipe after repenting and declaring war, as it were, is to do the things you were doing at first. Do the first works. And so I have been. I've been I've been trying to do the things. Like I said, I've been watching uh, sermon jams and different things on, on, on and I'm trying to uh, be more 
thoughtful about the stuff that I'm putting on my MP3 player and stuff like that. I'm trying to do the things that I was doing at first. Uh, I can go into more detail about that as well. Um, and I wanted to also read something that I thought was just really great from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is a, a commentator. I think he wrote like in the 1600s or something. And I never really uh, liked much Matthew Henry. But um, when I was in the hospital, I read his commentary on this particular passage. And I thought it was so helpful. So I will read it to you uh, here. He says, quote, The rebuke given to this church, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Those that have much good in them may have something much amiss in them. And our Lord Jesus, as an impartial master and judge, takes notice of both, though he first observes what is good and is most ready to mention this. Yet he also observes what is amiss and will faithfully reprove them for it. The sin that Christ charged this church with was their decay and declination in holy love and zeal. Thou hast left thy first love, not left and forsaken the object of it, but lost the fervent degree of it that had first appeared. Observe, the first affection of men towards Christ and holiness in heaven are usually lively and warm. God remembered the love of Israel's espousals when she would follow him whithersoever he went. These lively affections will abate and cool if great care is not taken and diligence used to preserve them in constant exercise. Christ is grieved and displeased with his people when he sees them grow remiss and cold towards him, and he will one way or another make them sensible that he does not take it well from them. So I read that and I decided, indeed, I think this is uh, God's way of trying to make me sensible to his uh, displeasure in my lukewarmness in terms of zeal. And I think that he has every right to do that because, you know, he purchased us if we are saved. He purchased us for his possession. We are in his inheritance, you know, and he can do with us what he wants. And I think he has every right to sort of wake us up to bring us back to where he wants us for his purposes. So, you know, I think the another thing that they said here that was good was talking about how it it's the lively affections will abate and cool if great care not be not taken and diligence used to preserve them in constant exercise. I think that's true. I think that I do and did get really lax in those kinds of things. For me, stuff like, uh, um, you know, watching sermon jams and listening to expositional teaching and and listening to praise music on my iPod every once in a while as well. You know, those those kinds of things. Also, I noticed after I thought about this for a while, one of the things that, that really sort of capsulizes the attitude is that of thankfulness. God says to be thankful in all things. And I think that I was far too complacent or taking things for granted. I don't know how to say that, but um, I think that the attitude of thankfulness breeds more thankfulness and it's a good place to be. I think you could almost do, if you almost could do one thing to get back on this path, I think thankfulness would be right up there. Um, and so, and it's one of the things that I, when I think back on that time in my life, it sort of capsulizes the, the main, it's sort of the main thing that I think about that was different, a thankfulness. And that, of course, could be different in anybody's situation. And as all the things that I tell you here on the show, uh, the reason that I tell them to you is that they 
hopefully will help some of you out there that are going through similar things. It may have, as uh, Matthew Henry says here, lost that fervent desire or fervent zeal, the, the degree of, of, of love that you may have had in the past for Christ. And I think that's the, that's the thing. It's a matter of degrees. We want to turn the knob back up. And I think learning that it's not an automatic progression of of zeal and love. It is something that you do work at, and that is through his word. And, and his word is living and active. It really does transform people. And just out of reading reading last night and just really reiterating that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really even matter what it is. It's not like you're reading, oh, I just figured the answer to my problem. It's a consistent building you up of life and love and and uh, and the things that you need. It's spiritual food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, so finally, I'm going to play this, I'll call it a sermonette, because it's only about 10 minutes long. It's something that I wrote in Africa for a church there. It was... Uh, at least double this length in Africa because of translation. Also, I was speaking slower. But it's about commitment, and it's about discipleship. And it kind of dovetails with what I was just talking about, even though it's not exactly the same concept. Discipleship and and, and love are connected, but not exactly the same thing. But I think it's important, and I hope you get something out of it. So here is this, uh, this sermon on commitment from Africa. I would like to talk to you today about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The word disciple means learner. In the ancient world, if you wanted to be like a great person, then you would become a disciple of that person. For example, someone might become a disciple of a Greek philosopher like Plato. The person would follow them around and learn everything they could from Plato. In the Bible, a disciple of Jesus was one who followed Jesus a person who was committed to learning everything that they could from him. Many times in the Bible, people came to Jesus and asked to be a disciple or follower of him. And Jesus would say things to those people which are sometimes difficult to hear. For example, in Luke fourteen twenty-five through 28, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, So, okay, this is a great multitude. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Then, after Jesus gives a few more illustrations to make his point, he concludes this teaching in verses 33 through 35, saying, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The first thing I want to say is that when Jesus says, if anyone does not hate their family, they cannot be his disciple, he is speaking in an exaggerated way in order to make his point. We know from John chapter 19 that Jesus loved his earthly mother and even told his disciple John to take care of her. Jesus is telling us here that our commitment to him needs to be so great that all of our other relationships seem to be hate 
by comparison. We see another example of this in Luke 9, 57-62. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then said he to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to be the first in importance in your life. Everything else must come after him, even very good things. Before I was a Christian, there were many things in my life that I considered more important than Jesus. I went to church when I was young. I believed the Bible was true, but I had many things that I was not willing to give up. If I had to make a choice between those things and Jesus, I would have chosen those things. The day that I personally was saved was the day that I decided to put Jesus above all those other things. Now, because in this passage we just read, Jesus is so serious about our commitment to him, I want us to examine ourselves to see if Jesus really is number one in our lives. I know that almost everyone in this room would say that he is first in their lives, but I also know that in some cases that would not be true. There are many things that we can put before Jesus. In this passage that we just read, there were two examples about family. Husbands, wives, children are often things that people put before Jesus in their lives. Of course, these things are very good, and we can find many scriptures telling us about their importance. But ask yourself this question. If I were like Job, if my wife and all my children died, would I still follow the Lord? Would I still say the words that Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him? Sometimes this can happen to people who do not yet have a family. The idol in your life can be your plans for a husband or a wife or children. You might want that more than you want anything else. If God did not give you those things, you would not serve him. If your plans for your future don't come to pass, will you still trust and follow God? Another thing that is often ranked higher than Jesus in people's lives is money. In the scripture, we have a good example of someone who wanted to follow the Lord, but he couldn't because he had an idol in his life, something that he wanted more than Jesus. The idol for him was money. Mark ten seventeen says, Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up thy cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There are many interesting things about this passage. In verse 17, we see that this man is running to the Lord. We also see that he gets on his knees in front of him. If this was a modern evangelistic meeting, we would say that this man was saved just because of that. 
but Jesus tells him he lacks one thing. Another interesting thing is in verse 21. After he tells him to sell his possessions, he then tells him to take up his cross and follow him. Take up your cross was an odd thing to say to him. Remember, this is before Jesus died on the cross. That must have been a very strange thing to hear. Jesus told him to take up a cross, a method for killing people. Jesus was telling him that he needed to die to himself. This man had an idol in his life. He loved Jesus, and verse 21 tells us that Jesus loved him too. But this man loved money more than Jesus. Sometimes the best thing God can do for you is to take away the thing that you love more than him. You might look at that as a tragedy if it happens. But God would look at it as an opportunity for you to get your priorities straight. After this man left the disciples, and Jesus had an excellent conversation about this man and what had just happened, Jesus concluded his message by telling them that he was worth the commitment that he requires. Verse 29, it says, So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who is not who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life he is worth it not just because of the life to come but deciding to follow jesus also changes everything here on earth when i changed my mind like this my life started to change jesus gave me new desires and a changed heart after this i found out that he wanted me to have good things even sometimes in abundance. But for me, before I could have them, I needed to not require them from him. We must only require him. We must decide to serve him, even if he takes everything we have away from us. And if you make that kind of commitment, he will give, the pow he will give you power to walk it out. So how do we do it? The answer to that is a little different for each situation. Some people, like the rich man in the story we just read, it may require some action from you. You may need to give something up. You may need to leave some situation. For others, putting Jesus first and committing to following him is mostly something that will happen in your heart. If Jesus is God, if he is all the things that he says he is in scripture, if the Bible is true, then he deserves to have my discipleship. He is worthy. But there is something that anyone who decided that should do. Remember, the word disciple literally means learner. Well, if we decide to be his disciple, we must begin to learn from him all the time. His words have the power to change us, to make us more like him. It's his words that we need to be experts on. We don't need new messages. We only need to understand the messages in Scripture better. When you read the Bible, think of it as you sitting to learn from your master. We are an apprentice. We want to become like our teacher. So the action we should take is to learn from him regularly. But we must first die to ourselves and die to the plans we have for our lives. He may give us the desires of our heart, but we must be willing to give them all up for him. You must be willing to serve him even in very difficult times. If you truly do that, if you put your commitment to God first in your heart, then it will also show in your actions. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. 
you can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.